Um, uh, this morning, um, uh, if we could, when we pray, let's, let's be praying for uh, the other churches in our community, and specifically, let's be praying today for Christian Family Fellowship. Uh, the pastor there is Pastor Jeff Lowther. Um, I know him. He's a good pastor, a good teacher, uh, a man of God. He loves Jesus a lot. And then his associate pastor, uh, Sean Johnston. So we'll be praying for both of them here uh, as we pray. But before we begin, I want to remind you once again that Jesus loves you. He loves you. He loves me more, but he loves you. <laughs> and... Um, and God's doing, God's doing good for you. He's doing good for me, and he's doing good for you, and he's doing good for our congregation. And um, I want to remind you of those promises that we, we read about that Jesus loves us and, and God's doing good for us in Scripture. And another passage is Romans chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. Listen, it says this, For scarcely for, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. That's pretty much true, right? We talk about dying for one another, um, giving up our lives, and, and, and we would do it maybe for someone who's righteous, but like for maybe a criminal, you know, a, a murderer, a rapist. Um, there's very few people who would die for a righteous man, much less than someone who is unrighteous. And so Paul starts that off, and he's, he's telling us about this, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a, a good man, some would even dare to die, but... But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 7. As we continue on into Luke chapter 7 and, and go through the gospel account, we read now in this chapter, if you're taking notes, I'll give you a brief outline as we go into this next chapter. We read that when Jesus had finished his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount or from the mountaintop, um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount that we refer to it, teachings about the kingdom of God. What we know is, is that he went back to Capernaum. Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. It's um, where Jesus had really established his headquarters, if you will, as he ministered throughout the region of Galilee. And so he's going back into Gal or into Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, um, and um, in, at this time when he came back to Capernaum after he'd been out ministering in the region with his disciples, we see that he, first thing that, that Luke accounts for us is that he heals um, a Roman centurion's servant. And when you begin to understand what that really involved and what that meant culturally at the time, it's, it's pretty significant. We'll talk about it a little bit. But he, he healed a Roman centurion's servant, then on the, vex, the very next day, he um, went to a, a nearby city, the city of Nine, in order to raise up a, a, a widow woman's only son back to life. Now, I mentioned this before, and I want to mention it again because this is so significant. It, it means a lot to me when I'm reminded of it, is that even though Jesus was, was ministering to the crowds of people wherever he went, we see that he was very intentional to minister and to reach out to the individual. Jesus cares about the individual. He cares about us individually and personally. And so again, this morning, as, as we're many gathered together and Jesus and God speaking to us through, the, through his word is ministering to us corporately, his desire is to meet with each one of us individually. And we see that again just with the heart of Jesus as he intentionally leaves Capernaum after this one incident there, having come back 
if you will, to his home. Um, the Bible tells us that he had no place to lay his head, so he didn't really have a house there. He's probably staying with his disciples. Um, but his headquarters, he, the very next day, he goes to the city of Nine. And he does so for this woman, for this one lady, this widow woman. And, and we're told that he was moved with compassion. We're going to talk about what that word of compassion means and just... Um, just to see that God has compassion for us, has compassion for us, for where you're at, for what you're going through, the, the struggles that you have. He's aware of it, and he, he wants to come to us. He's not burdened by it. He's not put out by our needs and our wants and our desires. He wants us, the Bible says, he says, come to him, come boldly to the throne of grace and receive what we need, help in our time of need. And God comes to us, and just like he did for this one woman. But also in this next chapter, Luke records this very interesting encounter. We're not going to get to this this morning, but I want to give you the, the full outline of the chapter anyway. But he, he records this interesting encounter with John the Baptist's disciples. And um, chronologically speaking at this time, we know that John the Baptist had been arrested. He's in prison. Things aren't going well for him, Right? The, the Messiah has come. John's identified him. His disciples are now following after Jesus. Uh, John still had a ministry, but John, uh, John was the kind of guy that told it how it, how it was, told it how it is. And he said some things that ticked off the king. And uh, the king, I don't want to give the whole story, but the king said, you, basically, you can't talk about me like that, even though it was the truth. And he arrested him. And we know John's in is that John in him ultimately because of his willingness to speak the truth, for his willingness to love God and, and to come uh, to stand up for righteousness is that he ended up having his, his head lopped off. And it's not far away from, from this happening. And John, John sends his disciples, those who are there ministering to him, he sent, they were sent back by John to Jesus to ask this question. Now think about this. John the Baptist, right, is the one who's standing in the water with Jesus, Heard the voice from heaven, saw the Holy Spirit descending upon him as a dove, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, John said as he declared it, who takes away the sins of the world, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one we've been waiting for, the one whom the prophet's been speaking about. And in all of that, John sends his disciples to ask this question. He asked them, Are you the coming one? Go and ask Jesus if he's the coming one, the one we've been waiting for, the Messiah. Or is there another that we should be looking for? And there's a lot to that. We'll talk about that next week. I don't want to get too far ahead. I'm pretty excited about it. I'd like to talk about it now, but we'll wait till next week. And lastly, at the end of this chapter, we see Jesus respond to the faith of a repentant woman, one that is identified as a sinner. She's known as a sinner and publicly as a sinner, and more than likely, she was a prostitute. It's not really defined for us, um, but... Um, uh, Jesus, he responds to this woman's faith, and she comes and she, she washes his feet um, with her tears and um, wipes them clean with her hair, and then she anoints his feet with this fragrant oil, and it's all as an act of worship, and it's a beautiful, beautiful story, and in doing so, Jesus declared her sins to be forgiven. 
That's what we get forward, looking forward to in this chapter. And if you're taking notes this morning, I want to point out. Now, I, I wanted to outline that in detail because all of these events are doing something very special for us in connection to the, to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And I want to point out this morning that these events, alongside the miraculous things that Jesus did in this chapter, they're intended to serve a threefold purpose. First, uh, the first purpose is to validate Jesus' authority. Again, Luke is documenting that, but over and over and over again, not only by the things that Jesus said, but the things that Jesus did, he, 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 he was just validating his authority. And, his, and, 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 and not only validating his authority, he's validating the teachings about the kingdom of God that he had just spoken to us, that we've just received and just gone through in the Sermon on the Mount. His teachings, if you remember, on love, his teachings on forgiveness and obedience that we've been studying about for the last few weeks in chapter six. That's the first purpose, is to authenticate his, uh, who he is and his teachings. In other words, uh, it's, it's, it's one thing to say something, another thing to, to back it up and to prove it. And this is what is Jesus offering proof. The second purpose is to further authenticate Jesus as the Messiah. That's the most important thing, as a matter of fact. That's the foundational thing, even from the beginning, going back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's our faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And, and he's given us more evidence to authenticate himself as the Messiah, the one, the one who, in context, the Hebrew people had been looking for, the one that they had been waiting for. And the third response is to reveal this heart of compassion, this heart of compassion that Jesus has and has has. Uh, had for the people that we're reading about, but also that he has for those of us, specifically for those of us who are without hope and those of us who are suffering. And, um, you know, God has a, a really um, personal and intimate way, at least in my life, of preparing me for these times when we gather together. And I've been... been um, I didn't know I was going to share this. I was going to be, uh, I knew I was going to be teaching through this chapter. I knew what it was about. And on Tuesday morning, we have men's prayer here at 6.30. And, and, uh, and you're, all the men are welcome to come and pray with us. It's, it's not at 6.30, it's at 6 o'clock. Um, at 6 o'clock every Tuesday morning, we pray for people in the church. We pray for, uh, for one another. Um, we'd love to have you come and pray with us. Um, but as I was driving, I saw this guy, this young man, walking down 9th Street, and, and it was clear that he had been probably out all night long. Anybody remember those nights? And you're like trying to stumble your way back early in the morning. At least I've had, I had many nights like that uh, where the night never ended, where you just stumble back to where um, you needed to be. But this guy, the, fit, the look on his face was, it, it made me remember how I felt without Christ, and, and times in my own life um, where I felt without hope. Because he was walking back probably from somewhere he had been, and, and I just, God just put this thought in my heart. It's like, like he had been rejected. He had been cast out. He had been forsaken by those who were his friends. And you guys all know that when you were out living your life before Christ that you, had, you did have some real friends. But most of the, the friends that I had were friends that, that just wanted to wanted what I had or wanted to do what I was doing, really wanted nothing to do with me. And so when all the fun was over, you, you were alone. It was a lonely place. And um, that's what I thought about this guy. That was the thought that God put in my heart, is this guy was, was leaving somewhere where really nobody loved him and he had no place to go. 
And, and I remember that, that, that sense of hopelessness, that suffering. And, and I prayed for him. And I don't know if that was true. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit prompted me, and I just prayed for him in that moment. God, let him remember that he's got a mom or a dad or an aunt or an uncle or somebody who loves him, and he just needs to go home. I remember one time waking up and feeling that way um, uh, when I was literally squatting uh, with a bunch of other people in a trailer, uh, uh, a single wide trailer in a, in, a, in a trailer park where we would, every night we would break into it and cut the meter block off to turn the power on. We'd sleep there and leave before anyone showed up the next morning. And uh, I remember living like that and um, there was a highway that ran in front of this trailer park. And um, I remember one morning waking up and going, feeling like that, like these guys really wanted nothing to do with me, but yet I had because of my sin, I had wrecked my life so bad that there was still no one who wanted me, having nobody, nothing. And um, there was this like six foot tall chain link fence and I, I just left everything. I had nothing. And I, I walked through the field and I hopped over the fence. It was near Boise, Idaho. And all my family, uh, my mom and dad lived back in Washington State. And I walked out to the highway, and I just put my thumb up because in that moment, I felt like if I went home, that maybe my mom and dad would take me back. And they did. And the, the love of, of parents. And, but I was that guy. I felt like that in that moment. And, and that's way more than I plan on sharing this morning. But what I'm reminded of is that, is, is it, is that God has a heart of compassion for us. And, and when, I, when I came to God, he gave me compassion. He gave me mercy, grace, and forgiveness he gave me compassion too. And our Lord is compassionate. And, and he comes to us. He comes to us when we're without hope. When we're suffering. In light of this, we need to consider that leading up to these events, Jesus had said in John chapter 4, verse 48, listen. And this is our hearts too, guys, it is. And it's the heart of the people that Jesus was ministering to. He had said to them, and it's recorded in John's gospel, but leading up to these events here, he said this to them. He said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And at the end of chapter 6, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had challenged those who had heard him teach, saying to them that, that the only way those, uh, he, he, challenged, he challenged them, those who had heard his teaching, saying to him that the only way those who call him Lord would be able to survive this life, the storms of this life, whether it's ones we bring on ourselves or just the ones in this life, the only way that we're going to be able to survive the storms of this life is by building our life, building their life, he was saying to him, and us also building our lives on him and on the things that he has instructed us or taught us to do. But like we've talked about, the things that Jesus had instructed, the things that Jesus had taught, they're very difficult things, right? Like love your enemy. Give to everyone who asks of you. Be merciful like your Father is in heaven, merciful, and forgive to forgive. And the point is, is in light of these teachings and, and this challenge for those of us who who called Jesus our Lord here this morning, the challenge for us to do the things that he said um, 
we need to remember, the point is, is that Jesus, who is merciful to us and understanding with us, that he performed these miracles that Luke has recorded to us and revealed his heart of compassion to us that Luke has recorded for us so that we also today might read these things and see the signs and wonders and have reasons to believe, reasons to trust in him. When God reveals himself to us through his word here, reasons to believe in him, reasons to trust in him, and reasons to be encouraged to do what he has taught us to do. This is what this chapter does for us this morning, and I pray that it would do that into your hearts and minds as well. Let's pray. Father, I do, Lord, ask that you would minister to us here this morning in this way that we would take the teachings that we've been going through, the things that you have said, and we would read now into this chapter more of the events that, you, um, that were, were present in your life and the people that you came in contact with and the things that you did, Lord, that they would, first of all, reveal to us the type of God that you are and your great love for us, but also, Lord, that we would see that if you're God who's able to do those things, that you're still a God who lives today and wants to do these awesome things for us. Lord, build our faith. Lord, you tell us, and it's true. Sometimes it's like that. Unless we, we see, we won't believe. But God, we are, we are looking for you again this morning to reveal yourself to us so that we may have um, faith when we have no faith or greater faith when we only have a little faith. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now when he had concluded all his sayings, okay, Jesus, there on the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, when he had concluded all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And so when you heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one from whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then, verse 6, Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, so Jesus was going to go to the house, and, and, and before he got all the way there, it says the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled, literally he was astonished at them. And he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. And Father, I know that there is some people here this morning um, that doubt that you'll do good things for them. So I pray, God, that you would give them faith and understanding. I, I know there are some, Lord, who doubt who you are here this morning. 
And so I pray you would give them faith and understanding, Lord, to know, first of all, who you are, that you're real, that you've come to save them, to give them a newness of life, and that there's nothing in the past, Lord, that will prevent you, nothing in their past, Lord, that will prevent you or hold you back from giving them today what they need and desire. Lord, that you see us all as worthy, and you love us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the thing that we need to keep in mind, like I was mentioning earlier, is that this centurion, first of all, as we look at him, what that means, that title, that centurion, he was a commander in the Roman army, and um, he was a commander over a, a group of 100 soldiers. And in case you didn't know this, historically speaking, the nation of Israel was under Roman rule at this time, and the Romans were very oppressive to the Hebrew people, and the Hebrew people despised the Roman government who had conquered them. And as I did a little research, I came across a book called the De Re Militarii, um, and it's a 14th century history book that records Roman warfare and military principles. And in that, in that book, it details some things about centurions. And what I found out is that in order to become a centurion, you first of all had to be literate. You had to read the, be able to read the commands that came to you and then delegate them out. So you had to first of all be literate. You had to be recommended to the position of centurion by a senior officer. And that was usually because they recognized um, you in battle or, or something to that, that, that degree. You were, you were uh, recommended to the position by a senior officer. You had to be at least 30 years of age and you had to have several years of military experience, military service. And in, in light of that, you, you, you were considered, you had to be considered to be an, an, an expert in all military exercises. And in regards to character, which is also outlined in this book that I read, and in regards to character, centurions were to be vigilant, temperate, active, and ready. This was, this was key, I thought. Ready to execute their orders and strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline uh, among his soldiers. This meant as we look at all this, this meant that in addition to being a Gentile, meaning not being a Jewish man, a Hebrew, not being a Gentile, this centurion had been and was currently an instrument of the, of the Roman government who was currently oppressing Israel. Now, in the New Testament, when you study it out, interestingly, there are four centurions who are mentioned. Four centurions who are mentioned in action to the New Testament events that we read about. And oddly enough, the ones that are mentioned, all of them are described as good men of character. And they are spoken of in a good light. And this nameless centurion, because we never know his name, not even from any of the other gospel accounts, this nameless centurion who, who according to, to verse 2, if you look there, that he had sought Jesus to help his servant, whom he cared about, who was sick and ready to die. This is the first centurion that's mentioned in Scripture. The second, I'm going to give you a, an overview of all four of them. The second, whose name is also not told to us uh, in any of the gospel accounts, yet is, 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 um, uh, we have the account of him, um, was in charge. This second centurion was in charge of Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. That's the second one that the New Testament teaches us about or tells us about. And in Matthew chapter 27, verses 54, we're told that upon 
We're told that upon seeing the things that took place on the day, on that day, on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, it says that that centurion, that man who had been in charge of Jesus, it says that he feared greatly and said about Jesus, quote, truly, this was the Son of God. Pretty cool. The third centurion, the third Roman centurion mentioned in Scripture is, I think he's perhaps the most notable of all, and we do know his name. His name is Cornelius. You've heard of him. And he's spoken of in Acts chapter 10. And in that chapter, we're told that he was a devout man, a devout man who feared God, again, also a Gentile. And he gave, it says he gave generously to the people. He prayed to God always. And we know that the apostle Peter, after the day of Pentecost, shortly after the early church was established, that the apostle Peter was eventually sent by God. And God had come to him in a vision and, and um. Uh, you remember the sheet came down and all the un- unclean animals were on, on it and, and um, God said, Peter, arise and eat. And Peter's all, not so, God. You know, like if you've ever argued with God, you can kind of get a good sense of what Peter was doing and you can relate to that. Like you know better than God. And Peter was thinking he knew better than God and thinking, no, I'm not gonna eat anything unclean. And we know that, that God was preparing Peter's heart to go to this Gentile whom are, were considered to be unclean. Gentiles, they're unclean. Um, And we know that he was sent, that Peter was sent eventually by God to go and preach the gospel message, the message of salvation by grace through faith because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross through his death and resurrection. And so he was sent to preach to Cornelius, and Cornelius was the first of all the Gentiles to receive the Holy Spirit. That was the third Roman centurion. The fourth, the last Roman centurion mentioned, we do know his name, his name was also, his name was Julius. And Julius, according to Acts chapter 27, it tells us there that he treated the Apostle Paul with, the Apostle Paul with kindness when he was the one in charge of taking him by ship to Rome. And he's the one that was put in charge over Paul. Um, and uh, we know that the ship ended up sinking in a storm, but Paul was being taken to Rome in order to be, as a prisoner, to be tried, and Julius was the one that was in charge of him. So, so even though the Bible mentions these four centurions that we read about in the New Testament in a favorable light, the fact of the matter is, as I already said, the Hebrew people despised the Roman Empire. And, and more so, in a, in a more intimate and direct personal way, they despised the centurions because the centurions were, were, were dispersed throughout the whole land of Israel in groups of hundreds. They were stationed throughout Israel and they were set up all throughout in groups of hundreds in order to establish Rome's military presence and bring a physical control over the Hebrew people. And typically, they ruled in a very harsh way a very oppressive way. Nevertheless, this centurion who'd been stationed in Capernaum, we see that he was unlike most Roman soldiers in that he was well-liked. It says, well-liked and respected by the Jewish people in and around Capernaum because he, according to verses four and five, he loved them. And we know that's probably because he loved God. He built a synagogue for them. We don't understand the man's relationship with Yahweh, the, the Hebrew God, but there's some indication that there's a connection there in the text. And so when the Jewish elders came to Jesus, it would have been an unusual thing, but they came there, and, 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 and because the Cornelius, or not Cornelius, because this, this, um, uh, this Roman soldier, this centurion, felt like he could find favor with Jesus if he sent the Jewish elders to him. 
And he pleaded with him to answer the centurion's request to heal his dying servant. And Jesus went. He wasn't even sending him out for a request for himself. It was for his servant, it says, whom he also loved. However, the thing that caused Jesus to marvel wasn't the uniqueness of this Roman centurion or that a Gentile was reaching out to him. The thing that caused Jesus to marvel over this man was not even the things that he had done for the Hebrew people or even his love for the servant or for the nation of Israel. It says that he marveled because of this man's great faith. And that's, that's what impressed Jesus the most. And when we stop to think about it, his faith is impressive. Considering verse 6 tells us that, that, that when Jesus was, was not far from the centurion's house, probably close enough for the centurion to see. He was probably watching. He was looking, and when he saw Jesus coming, he then sent his friends who were in the house. He had sent the Jewish elders. These other friends were probably also Romans, Gentiles. It says that he sent, he sent them to Jesus to stop Jesus. And when they reached Jesus, they spoke this man's message, which reveals an additional, additional characteristic, I think, he, he sent Jesus, he sent these friends to, 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 to speak his message, and I think it reveals his humility. Faith and humility, great faith and humility, as he acknowledged in verse 7 that he was unworthy for Jesus to come and even enter his house. Yet because he was a man who had been given, under, given authority, he knew that Jesus, who also had authority, he didn't have to come into the home. He didn't have to lay hands on the, on the sick servant. He didn't have to do some, some kind of, um, uh, of act physically. He knew, he knew Jesus to be different. He knew Jesus, who also had authority, could just speak a word and give the command for the servant to be healed, and it would be done. I don't know about you, but, but I'm, I'm not like that. I'm, uh, usually I'm like, Lord, just give me a sign. You know, I, I, I believe you, but can you show me? I'll go do this, Lord, but can you give me, you know, I throw out my fleece, so to speak. And it is great faith, and it is humility just to speak a word. And in this, I think as we look at the centurion this morning, I think we need to see how faith and humility work together. Because faith and humility always accompany one another. At least it should. True faith, biblical faith, great faith, always accompanies humility. And in regards to faith and humility, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon, who said this, he said this. He said, your faith will not murder your humility. Your humility will not stab at your faith. But the two go hand in hand to heaven like a brave brother and a fair sister the one bold as a lion, the other meek as a dove. The one rejoicing in Jesus, the other blushing at self. Faith and humility. Because this man, this centurion, this Gentile, this Roman soldier, this man in authority, because he had exercised great faith, because he had come in humility, we read in verse 10 that when the servants who had been sent to Jesus returned to the house, they found the servant who had been sick made well. 
And in doing so, we see how Jesus answered this centurion's unselfish request and proved, and in this, Jesus, again, proving to us, proving to those who were following him, proving that he did have the authority that the, uh, that the centurion trusted him to have. If you have this authority, I believe in it, then just speak this word. And, and Jesus didn't go, well, I don't know if I have the authority. Let me go in anyway and lay hands on it. He's all, it's done. And Jesus has that authority. So if this Roman centurion, guys, as a soldier of Rome who'd been trained in, in, in pure military style to be self-sufficient, right? And not only that, not only had been trained as a, as a soldier to be self-sufficient, we know that he also had a pagan background. If he, with both of these things, was able to demonstrate this kind of faith in the words, there's the key. If he was able to demonstrate this kind of faith in the words that Jesus spoke and commanded by commanding the servant to be healed, how much greater should our faith be today? How much greater should our faith be today? Considering, guys, you know, we have um, been given the Bible, which is the Word of God. It's the Word of God, and we've been given it to read, to study, to be comforted by, and the Bible clearly tells us that it's the word of God that builds our faith. Remember in Romans or in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, it, 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 it points this out and says, it says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And in those moments when we feel like we have no faith or, or even little faith, we should go to the word of God and allow for it to do the work that God says it will do where we read about who Christ is, where we read about what Jesus has done, where we see the promises of God that have been promised to us and allow our faith to be increased. Furthermore, in addition to the word of God, guys, you know what we have that this Roman centurion did not have? We have 2,000 years of church history and testimonies of thousands of believers who lived before us by faith, as the Bible says, as a cloud of witnesses to encourage us to run the race that we've been called to run with endurance, the one that has been set before us so that we too also may live by faith. The witness and the testimony of others. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it tells us this, and it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. But I'm here to tell you, in those times when we are guilty of no faith, like, like those in Nazareth whom we read about back in chapter 4, about a month ago, or when we are a person of little faith like the disciples of Jesus often demonstrated themselves to be and were rebuked for, Jesus would say to them, oh, you have little faith. When we're guilty of no faith or guilty of little faith, you know what we can do? We can pray that we should pray for God to increase our faith because God wants to prove himself faithful to us. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that without faith is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Are you seeking him? 
Are you calling out to him? Are you coming in humility? If you're in that place, God will meet you every single time. Now, verse 11, as we continue on through this chapter, it says, Now it happened the day after that, that he, Jesus, went into a city called Nine, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when they came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. What a powerful little sentence. Do not weep. And in that moment, when there's no hope, think about that. In that moment, when you have no hope, Jesus comes and speaks a little word that changes everything. And, and, and where, where all hope had been lost, now there's a glimmer of light, a maybe, a possibility. What can God do? What will God do? And for this woman, it was these words, do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead set up and began to speak. And he, Jesus, presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all of Judea and all the surrounding region. Just a little bit of information. The city of Nine was located about 25 miles from Capernaum. And Jesus didn't have no Subaru four-wheel drive to get there. 25 miles. It's a great distance to travel by foot for one person. 25 miles for Capernaum. And we see that Jesus traveled that long distance just to bring comfort to a widow who was grieving the death of her only son. And the fact that her son had died is, is sad. It's sad enough in and of itself. I can't think of anything worse than you, one of your children preceding a parent in death. But since it was her only son, as we're told here in this culture, in this society, in this situation, it was worse because this meant that she would have been left alone and dependent upon the charity of others for survival, for support, unless she had some other kind of relative who would be willing to care for her, some other kind of relative that would provide for her or protect and watch over her. And according to the Jewish funeral possession custom, and when you read and study it that out, the way that this looked is that the funeral procession was taking place. The mother would have been the one walking in front of her son. And he would have been being carried out of the city to his grave in this open coffin. And so when Jesus, who was coming into the city, okay, they were heading out. He was coming in. It's coincidence, right? Perfect timing. God always has a plan. Perfect timing in our lives. And as, so as Jesus was coming into the city with the crowd that was following him, it says that he saw her. And according 
to verse 13, he had compassion on her and spoke those words to her saying, do not weep. And, and in doing so, what we need to see is that Jesus, in just that one small phrase, in those three words, Jesus seeing her and then saying to her, do not weep, we see that Jesus instantly, he understood the situation. And he had sympathy on the widow. And he gave her hope in that moment despite the tragedy of the situation. Why? Because he had compassion on her, it says. That was the motive. That was the reason. And this word compassion, it means, it literally means when you look that word up in the Greek, it means to have one's heart go out to someone. And the, the actual word is the word bosom. And, and, it, and it speaks, it's, it's a very strong word because it speaks of like the gut. And, and the, that's where the Hebrew people believe the, the, your heart was at. It's not here, but it was here, the root of all emotion. And it's, it's this idea of your inner being, your, your guttural feelings going out to someone. But another way of describing compassion is to say this. I like this. It's your pain in my heart. Your pain in my heart. We all know what it's like to feel our own pain, but to have compassion means to feel the other suffering, the other pain of someone else. And it says that Jesus had compassion. Her pain in that moment as a widow who had lost her only son in the funeral procession, her pain in that moment, her grief, her brokenness, her sense of loss, her loneliness entered into the heart of Jesus, into the heart of God. And he saw her, and he spoke to her. But the thing that makes compassion different from other feelings, because, you know, you can have pain in someone, someone else's pain in your heart. You can be sensitive, and you, you can still do nothing about it, right? That's not compassion. Compassion is different in that compassion is different from other feelings, such as sympathy or even pity, in that compassion is defined as a feeling that moves a person to take action. To take action. When I saw that young man walking on the street the other day, the action that I took was prayer. God moved in my heart. I felt what I thought was his situation. Whether it was true or not, I don't know. But I felt it in my own heart, and I was brought to pray. And it takes us to action. And this is what Jesus did as he moved past the grieving mother, it says. He went past the mother and went up to the coffin, the coffin and he touched it. And, and, and that would have been an act of defilement. Jesus did this stuff all the time, blowing away. People would have been like, he's the rabbi, he's the teacher, right? And he's like, oh no, he just defiled himself. And in doing so, there was all these ceremonial washings. These, you couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't do certain things. And Jesus would touch the leper. He would touch the sinner. He would touch the prostitute. And he would touch the young man, the coffin of the young man. But the thing about it is, in every case of defilement, Jesus was never defiled. Jesus touches us, and he's never defiled by our defilement. On the contrary, we're made whole. We're healed. We're given life. And it's an awesome picture we see here again is Jesus, he didn't have to touch the coffin, right? He just proved the day before that he could just speak. And the power would go out of him. 
It's a very significant thing that he did by reaching out, walking past the mom, touching the coffin. Then in verse 13, verse 14, it tells us that in that moment, Jesus commanded the young man who had died to rise. Now, the gospel accounts, in the gospel accounts, there are three miracles of resurrection from the dead that Jesus performed, that Jesus did. This young man who had been dead probably no more than a day, he was the first. The second is in Luke chapter 8, where we are told about um, a 12-year-old girl who had uh, just died, if you remember that. And then the last one is, and you can look there in Luke chapter 8, and the last one is in John chapter 11, where we're told that Jesus raised an older man by the name of Lazarus, and Lazarus had been in the tomb um, for several days, so much so that when Jesus said, <laughs> remove the stone, his sister said, Lord, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Old King James, Lord, not so, for he stinketh. He had started long enough that he would have started to deteriorate. Now, according to verse 15, it says that this young man proved evidence, right? Proved that he was alive by sitting up and speaking. I don't know about you, but I wonder what he said. He sat up and he talked. And then when we look at the 12-year-old girl, when she demonstrated she was alive, it was by walking and eating. Jesus said, give her some food to eat. And when Lazarus was raised back to life, he demonstrated that he was alive by walking out of his tomb and then having his grave cloths removed the ones that he had been wrapped in and the interesting thing to note is that in each instance Jesus had resurrected them back to life by nothing more than the power of his words he spoke it and in light of this there are two significant things I think for us to note the most obvious is the fact that Jesus Christ is power over death amen he has power over death. And the Bible teaches us that God never intended for any of us to die, but because of our decision to sin and to separate ourselves from God, death entered in. Why? Because God's the giver of life. God's the sustainer of life. And when you separate yourself from the giver and the sustainer of life, there's no life. Physical life or eternal life. There's no life apart from God. However, Jesus has power over death. And not only did he raise people back to life while he was here on this earth, he himself, after dying on the cross, was raised back to life three days later. And this is significant because the, the, Bible, the Bible promises us who put our faith in Jesus, it promises us that as a result of putting our faith in Jesus that we will be given a new life. And that through that new life, we become a new creation and we're told this in Ephesians chapter 2. Look, it says in verses 1 through 5, it says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and our mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. But God, hope, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And because of this, 
Because of this, when or if we experience, because some of us won't, I believe some of us in this room today will not experience physical death because the return of Jesus Christ is near and we're listening for the sound of the trumpet. We're looking to the clouds for his return. But if or when we experience a physical death, we will also be resurrected back to life. The Bible says to an eternal life. And in a moment, we'll be given a new body. Someone was making fun of my gray hair this morning. My new body's not going to have gray hair, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> 